Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're actually finishing up chapter 12, verse 25, which is an introduction to chapter 13. And as we'd like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come together to study your word. We're reminded uh, that when we study your word, that we should be talking about who you are and not what you are. We know, we think of the Methodist theologian E. Stanley Jones who said, talk about what you believe and you have disunity. Talk about who you believe and you have unity. And we've seen all this disunity in our churches and we ask that you have people to wake up to who you are and thank you for the study, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, Amen. Mark. Good evening. Well, we are uh, easing into the 13th chapter of Acts, which will complete the transition from the emphasis on Judea and Samaria to the other parts of the Roman world. We have this transition at the end of chapter 12, and let's just read that one verse, please, 12, verse 25. Before we start here, uh, Mark, uh, a friend of mine who's a lexicographer for Wycliffe Bible Translators said that both in Matthew 28 and in Acts 1 that the first people to be converted were, or the second would be the Palestinians, which... It doesn't say Palestine, but it says Samaria. And, and looking a little bit, I find that this would be, Samaria today would be what we call Palestine. Well, kind of. The Zionists have resurrected the term Samaria so they don't have to say the occupied territories. <laughs> so it's a euphemism uh, for them. They talk about Judea and Samaria, the traditional homeland of the Israelite people. Samaria was in between Judea and Galilee in the first century. So it does overlap significantly with a number of the areas where Arabs still live in great duress, and which is considered part of the West Bank, certainly. It would go on further down to the, also include the area 
of Israel proper as uh, created by the United Nations uh, during the partitioning uh, after World War II. So it kind of cuts both ways to try to resurrect that term of Samaria and to apply it to the Palestinian people today. Well, but no, he was his point was that Samaria at the time of Jesus was the the, uh, the, the, the Palestinians or the people there. I don't know if were, were actually living in that area, and that was the the uh, directive there. Well, just like uh, if we go to Egypt and they do DNA tests now on these mummies of the Egyptian pharaohs, and they find an amazing similarity between ancient Egyptian genetics and modern Egyptian genetics, even though the religion has changed um, twice from paganism to Christianity to uh, Islam, as far as the majority religion, the genetic makeup of the people is the same. And so that's probably also likely true of the Palestinian people. You know, the descendants of Abraham had been in that area and the Arab people certainly to the uh, to the east, where they settled in very ancient times, and then they've constantly migrated back into Palestine uh, through the years. So that wouldn't surprise me at all if they're if the ancient Samaritan people are genetically linked to the modern day Arabs who live in Palestine. But there are also a remnant of Samaritans who have continued to practice the Samaritan religion all the way through from the people that we read about here in the book of Acts in the first century. So it would be interesting to see genetically how similar the uh, the tiny group of Samaritans are to Arabs living in the West Bank. Yes, very interesting. Okay, we're going to read verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. John Mark's mother was the one who had a house church meeting in her very nice house in Jerusalem when Peter was released from jail back a number of chapters before. So he was in all likelihood an eyewitness to Jesus and to the events surrounding his uh, arrest and execution and resurrection and so on. And this is the Mark that we attribute to the second gospel, the gospel of Mark. This John Mark here mentioned in verse 25. Now, Barnabas and Saul had come from Antioch in Syria and had go, gone down to Jerusalem This was back at the end of chapter 11 in the book of Acts. They're carrying food and money there for the Judean Christians because of the famine. Now, we've seen, as we go through the book of Acts, we've seen over and over how all these little events and side events and minor events are all fulfilling in detail uh, vast numbers of promises given to Old Covenant Israel through the Hebrew prophets And this idea of the Gentile Christians delivering offerings down to the Judean Christians, in a sense we can say that this is yet another fulfillment of some of these promises. In this case, we go to Isaiah, the 60th chapter, 
towards the end of the prophecy of Isaiah. And it's talking about the glory of the transformed Zion. I'll pick up in, in verse 3 of Isaiah 60. The Gentiles or nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. All of them have been gathered. They have come to you. Your sons from afar do come and your daughters on the side are supported. Then you see and have become bright and your heart has been afraid and enlarged. For turn unto you do the multitude of the sea. They shall be changed to you and the strength of the Gentiles shall come unto you or the wealth of the Gentiles. That could also be translated. And it continues on talking about a treasure caravan with dromedaries from Midian and Ephah and Sheba from these trade caravans that ever since the Babylonian captivity, these huge caravans brought the wealth of the Judeans who stayed in the east and didn't return with Ezra and Nehemiah. They felt guilty, but they still stayed behind. But they sent a vast amount of wealth every year up to Jerusalem to maintain the temple and the priests and the Levites and so on. So this uh, Isaiah 60 depicts the wealth of the nations and the people of the nations flowing into the transformed Jerusalem. And then if we go to the last chapter in the prophecy of Isaiah 66, it's kind of continuing with other thoughts about the the work of God to transform Jerusalem and Mount Zion in the uh, final days. It's talking about uh, about her bringing forth a man-child and then bringing forth other children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, asked the Lord up in verse 9. And that's a whole other story there. But But needless to say, if he intended to bring forth the kingdom in the first century, Isaiah says it's going to happen when I say it's going to happen. That's a whole other story. Anyway, after this man-child is born and then all these other new children are born uh, to God in Jerusalem, verse 20 says, And I will set a sign and have sent those who are escaping to the nations, Tarshish, Pol and Lud, drawing bow, Tubal and Javan, the isles that are far off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my honor. They have declared my glory or honor or wealth amongst the nations. And they have brought all your brethren out of all the nations, a present to Yahweh on horses and on chariots and on litters, on mules and on dromedaries, unto my holy mountain Jerusalem, says Yahweh, as the sons of Israel bring the present in a clean vessel into the house of Yahweh. And I will take them to be priests and Levites. So we have all this imagery in the book of Isaiah of the wealth of the nations flowing into Jerusalem. And so the idea of Gentile Christians taking offerings and giving them to uh, Judea, uh, this will fulfill, in a sense, these prophecies of the wealth of the nations flowing into Jerusalem in the latter days. Um, 
and it's also going to turn things around for for hundreds and hundreds of years the israelite nation thought that all the wealth of god flowed out to the nations of the world through them they were the chosen people they alone had the law of god and so they had to distribute the wealth of god out to the nations that has been changed and we're seeing all through the book of acts this dramatic spiritual transformation of israel from old covenant israel a harlot bride a faithless bride who had perverted the ways of god that bride has now become the enemy of god which we saw in chapter 12 in great detail how they were uh, persecuting um, the the saints of god uh, the death of james pleased the people of Judea, the imprisonment of Peter and the near execution pleased them. They had truly become the enemy of God. And so they've been transformed from God's covenant people into God's enemy. And this new people that were created, born really at the the cross when Christ said it is finished, come of age on the day of Pentecost, and then has been growing dramatically ever since. This is the new spiritual Jerusalem that is uh, fulfilling all of these promises we see in the Hebrew prophets. And so the wealth of the Gentiles is flowing into Judea, reversing what had been the case for 1,200 years. No longer would God's blessings flow only through physical Israel and its remnant Judea out to the nations, but now we see the wealth of the nations flowing back into Jerusalem in fulfillment of these prophecies. Anyway, that's just a little note there on uh, 12. So, Barnabas Saul had finished this work, and Paul writes about this in, in great detail in many of his letters later about how important it is for these Gentiles to make these offerings to the Judeans, who many of which still had reservations about accepting the Gentiles on an equal basis. Um, Saul was f- very committed, uh, Paul as we know him, um, was very committed to establishing this equality between the Judean and the non-Judean in the uh, church in the first century. So they fulfilled this first uh, work of benevolence, and then they brought along a native of Jerusalem, John Mark, as they returned uh, back to Antioch. And so now this flows in back to the first three verses in chapter 13. Mark, in comment on what you've just said, it seems so strange to consider the modern state that calls itself Israel has, has adopted the name Israel of the Zionist state that calls itself Israel, acting in the same way, attempting to act as the center of the universe and actually funding itself throughout the nations by going out and and actually wringing money out of the nations for its keep. And it seems you talked about the money flowing into Israel. It seems that the current apostate state of Israel has stolen that image and is is applying for it. They're saying, 
we are the Israel send your dollars. <laughs> Support us. Yeah, you know, it, it is a, it is kind of a ghoulish uh, copy of this picture we find in the Bible, but that certainly is true. And these people, if nothing, they do use the Bible selectively when they can to try to uh, justify yeah. what they're doing. That's okay, I'll read the first. Time they use it. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. All right. Thank you. Now, Antioch became a magnet for the Greek-speaking Judean Christians who had to flee Judea after the arrest and execution of Stephen early in the book of Acts. They dispersed back throughout the Roman world to all these major cities where there were significant uh, Judean communities, but a large number collected in Antioch of Syria, and this was a very effective group who went there. It mentions specifically that some from Cyrene uh, ended up there, and here we find one of these four, Lucius, uh, being named of Cyrene. Interestingly, the guy that carried the cross for Jesus was uh, also of Cyrene, but we don't you know, know about him or the dots aren't connected for us if he was active in the community of believers uh, here at this time. But anyway, these Cyrene, which is in uh, present-day Libya, up on the Mediterranean coast, these were an active uh, community of Judeans who believed on Jesus and then were active throughout the Greek-speaking world. And uh, so here's one of them. Barnabas was from Cyprus originally, we are told. And then this is interesting, Menaean, a foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. And when it says foster brother, that means that he was brought in to the royal court to be raised with the prince. This was one of the youngest sons of, of Herod the Great. And he ruled uh, Galilee and Perea as a tetrarch from 4 BC to uh, AD 39. He's the same one who had James executed. So here he is persecuting the church, whereas his foster brother is one of the most active teachers in the church, uh, kind of ironic there. There had been a, a Judean Essene named Manaim who had predicted that Herod the Great would become a great ruler and he was elevated uh, by Herod the Great. And so that might have been his son or grandson who was brought into the court of Herod to be raised there amongst the royal family. So that's some interesting trivia here in this uh, name list in verse 1. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit 
gives them this message to set Barnabas and Saul apart for the work which I have called them. Now, we've been burdened by the doctrine of the Trinity for, what, 1,700 years. And it it really kind of confuses the matter a little bit. When we see this word Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Trinity would tell us that this is a, one of three persons of the Godhead equal in every sense to the Father and the Son, are certainly equal in nature, if not in degree. But this same language could also be translated the Spirit of Christ just as easily. And it actually is much less confusing if you do choose to translate it that way, the Spirit of Christ. Christ had promised the believers in the upper room right before his arrest that even though he was going away in his present form, that the Comforter would come back, and uh, which we would convey to the side of the Holy Spirit. But then he turns, or he continues right on to say that he will be with them always, even to the end of the age, and he would be dwelling in them, just as he and the Father were intertwined and indwelt each other. He would be indwelling the disciples so that the Father could indwell the disciples through him. So, the Bible and the Gospel of John clearly teaches the indwelling of Christ uh, in the believer. And this idea of the Spirit of Christ then speaking to them makes a lot more sense and is a lot easier to understand in that context. We'll see this again here a little bit later when Paul is in Cyprus confronting the opposition. But, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, that seems to knock the one leg out of this doctrine of the Trinity. I haven't heard this before. Yeah, we're, we're our little local group of Christians here, we're, we're still going through the Gospel of John, and we're kind of noticing this is different than what we've all been taught. But I'm finding people everywhere that are waking up to this. Even when you read the, the great uh, Anglican scholar F.F. F. Bruce, he doesn't come out and say it that way. He doesn't mention the Trinity by name, but he, he chooses to talk about uh, Christ's spirit and God's spirit indwelling uh, the believers there in the first century. But uh, there, the restoration movement in the U.S. Uh, in the 1800s caught on to this quite early on, and uh, it made for some very nasty battles uh, between them and those who clung to the Protestant creeds, which were based on the older Catholic creeds that enshrined the doctrine of the Trinity as on the same par as Scripture. But the Word, and I and my study is showing the concept, is not found in the Bible. Well, that, how, does, how does it differ if it's Christ's Spirit indwelling within, hopefully, us? How is, how is that different from the concept of the Trinity that to God's Holy Spirit is among us? I, I don't, I don't, I don't quite see the difference. Yeah, it's not a major thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a minor nuance of understanding, but it does have a significant implication in that our dispensational and Zionist friends, they believe that Christ went away uh, when he ascended into heaven and 
he didn't come back. The Holy Spirit came back, but Jesus is still out there some billion miles away, you know, in this place called heaven, and he's waiting to come back, and they're waiting for his return. And so it has a significant implication in that idea, because yeah. when when we read carefully here, Christ said the whole theme of the Bible from Genesis to the end of Revelation is for God to purify a people so that he can make or create a helpmeet or bride for his son. This is the new creation that we talk about, the new birth, the new creation, the new life. This is being reborn into the bride of Christ, the collective body of believers, which serves as the bride of Christ today and as the dwelling place of the Father on earth, the new Jerusalem, the new temple, the new promised land, the fulfillment of Genesis 12. All of this we can see as God's eternal purpose. And if, in fact, God has completed that eternal purpose already, if he has created the perfect temple in which to dwell on earth, which the Bible makes very clear is his, is his intention, well, it, it really it makes the, uh, the whole dispensational Zionist view and of this future rapture and establishment of a physical kingdom of Jerusalem not only a moot point, but just totally and completely meaningless. Well, Mark... The charismatic movement, of course, makes much of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within the people, and, and they seek they, they seek this, and they try to speak in tongues, and they try to try to make visible outward signs that they are indwelled by this Spirit. Uh, I always thought that that meant the indwelling of Christ in them; they, they, that they believed Christ was indwelling them. Who is this spirit if it's not Christ? Well, that's an excellent question. It has to be Christ. I mean, and if you go back, as we did just a few months ago, and you study the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John, I mean, Christ says right there, Father, I pray that they will be one as you and I are one, so that I may indwell them, and that you may indwell me as I indwell them, and that we may all be one together. Yes, yes. But they somehow... They've somehow confused that by putting up this barrier that Christ is no longer active in the game, that he's waiting his turn again. Right. That's the futurist fallacy. That's abandonment theology. Abandonment, you know, he's, yeah. he's gone. He's left us. Uh, the world is going to get worse and worse until he comes back. But that's, you know, that's not what we're finding as we examine the, the Bible here. He, yeah. He never left them. He was with them to the end of their age. And, of course, he's with us in the new age because we are his uh, glorious bride and his dwelling place on earth. And he accomplishes all of his purposes through us, his uh, church, his bride, his his dwelling place. But we're not doing a really good job uh, in the United States <laughs> of being uh, that agency for God on earth. So it's a, it's quite a different worldview, really. And we, if we understand that the spirit, the comforter, and all this was was the spirit of oneness that existed between the Father and the Son, 
and that now is shared with us, then it makes a lot more sense than thinking of the Holy Spirit as a separate deity that is here and indwells us, and Christ is somewhere billions of miles away, you know, waiting some unspecified time to come back. So this almost justifies doing nothing, because it it almost justifies trying to be spirit-infilled and communicating, of course, somehow uh, with with God spiritually, but uh, but not actively uh, carrying out His kingdom because He isn't ready for His kingdom. Exactly, the kingdom is not here yet; it's deferred. So, it's, so you know, whatever's here now is not to do it. Yeah. You just uh, exactly. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. It it's it all links together, and it just really explains the moral cesspool that we've slid into uh, at this present point in time, in my, in my opinion. As far, the only aspect of that that we didn't address is that uh, in the charismatic movement, they try to apply these signs and wonders, which were unique to the first century, and the, the prophet Daniel and Paul and others talked about how they were about to be sealed up there in the first century uh, because they were the signs of the imminent judgment on Judea and the Judean people, like the signs and wonders that Moses wrought in Egypt were the signs of imminent judgment and destruction coming upon the Egyptian people in the days of Moses. Now those same signs and wonders are a warning for the Judean people of pending severe judgment. And uh, they were uh, temporary in nature. We, we have the unlimited spiritual power of God available at our fingertips, but that is not the same as being able to resurrect a dead corpse or to get bitten by a cobra and not be affected by the venom. Those were the special uh, signs of pending judgment in the first century. And we must discern now between uh, carnal gifts and spiritual gifts and spiritual power and carnal power. And if we, if we exercise the unlimited spiritual power that God wants to wield through us, we won't have to rely on the ability to supersede the natural laws of science in order to accomplish the great works that God has prepared for us to do. All right, so we see uh, they receive this message and then they uh, fast and prayed and then they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and uh, sent them on their way. The laying on of hands, as we've seen, was how the miraculous gifts that we just discussed were transferred from the apostles uh, to others. Uh, we saw that in Samaria. Earlier on, they had to wait for the apostles to come down to transfer these gifts through the laying on of hands, and uh, the sorcerer there noticed exactly how they were transferred. In this case, the laying on of hands probably is not conferring additional powers on Barnabas and Saul, since they already are uh, abundantly uh, gifted with spiritual power and miraculous power as well but it serves as a as a sign of approval and of commissioning 
as they are about to go out from their midst. All right, any uh, any other thoughts or comments here before we go and read verses 4 and 5? No, I guess not. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salimus, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Judeans. They also had John as their assistant. All right. The port city of Antioch in Syria was uh, Seleucia Pieria, which was five miles uh, north of the mouth of the Orontes uh, River. I'm not sure how far it was from the city center, but uh, it was some miles away. Uh, but they could go down there to the Mediterranean coast and catch a ship for Cyprus, which is, of course, not very far away from Syria out in the Mediterranean Sea. It's, uh, I guess, closer to Turkey. The name of Cyprus actually means copper, and it was the ancient world source of copper, which until the Iron Age came about, copper was the most strategic uh, mineral on the planet. It uh, was the base metal for the entire Bronze Age, bronze being various uh, alloys of copper blended in with other metals to give it great strength. Rome annexed uh, the island of Cyprus in 57 B.C., and it changed uh, in terms of which uh, administrative province it was part of uh, through the years. In 22 B.C., Augustus gave control of it to the Roman Senate, and since that year it was administered by a proconsul, just as we find here mentioned in uh, verse 7, which we haven't quite got to yet. So, had a rich history, and Barnabas had some connection here with the island, and they got to Salamis, which is a Greek city on the east coast of the island, and it was the administrative center for the entire eastern part of Cyprus. It had a large enough Judean community to have more than one synagogue, it had probably been there for uh, several hundred years. They begin what will become kind of the standard practice as they travel around the Roman world of going to a synagogue first. This is usually their uh, first stop, and the first place that they'll present the gospel of Jesus Christ will be to the Judean synagogue. Of course, the, remember we have the plan given back in Acts 1 by the resurrected Christ to the disciples, that they would be his witnesses first to Jerusalem and the regions of Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then Paul, in his letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 1, repeats this, that the gospel should be presented to the Jew first, and then to the other nations. So... Uh, they continued uh, this same sequence that Christ uh, gave at the beginning of Acts. <clears throat> the synagogues, in addition to the Judean community, also attracted almost in every city a significant audience of uh, Greeks or people of other nations who stopped short of uh, circumcision and being proselytes, but who were known as God-fears, just as Cornelius had been back in Caesarea 
in Judea. So there were two different communities within any synagogue. The, the people of Judean descent and then the people of non-Judean descent, all of whom spoke Greek in most of these places, but they were uh, two distinct communities, circumcision being the uh, line that really divided them into the two communities. Mark, they set a, a good example for us. Uh, if we want to change things, we need to go to the existing established corrupted church and start there. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I have noticed that parallel uh, numerous times, and many of us have probably run into people who so advanced their knowledge of the Bible, they became so disgusted with every institution of organized religion, and they've just retreated into their own home and teach only their own family, and they're more or less cut themselves off and become an island. And so their influence, sadly, is uh, is greatly limited. I know I was... I was really appalled when one of the leading scholars of the Preterist community revealed that he attends a real uh, huge dispensational church in San Diego. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, how can you do that? He says, well, they need help. <laughs> and then, you know, Tom here is, is doing the same thing. He's He's working in the midst of these people, you know, trying to minister to them and figuratively slap them to get them to wake up out of their out of their slumber. So yeah, I I, I think this does set a good example for us. Uh, that's where the work needs to be done today. And I might add uh, along that vein, actually, some churches like my own are uh, in a trap because they have all these groups. In fact, the sermon this last Sunday was quite revealing because his topic was in Galatians on. Uh, unity in the church and where uh, so often that quote I gave in the, the beginning there where we talk about what we believe rather than who we believe creates all these factions, if you will. And the pastor even mentioned Israel as one of those topics, among others, that causes division, disunity in the church. So that was kind of a really nice opening, but we sort of know the, the back side of the story. We actually had talked to the former elder at the church who took the on a tour to Israel. Most often, these Israeli tours, they're on buses. When they go into the West Bank, of course, they caution them about the Palestinians that are dangerous and what have you. But this elder actually went into Palestine, uh, the West Bank, via the the, tra the road less traveled, let us say, and so the pastor actually got to see the, the checkpoints and saw firsthand how the Palestinians are treated. But again, because of all these different philosophies that that are so prevalent in churches, they can be held captive because they can't really let the cat totally out of the bag. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they do have to maintain this uh, unity uh, across uh, widely diverging views in order to sustain the asset base and the staff and the payroll and so on. So they can't, particularly like the community churches, probably can't be as uh, dogmatic about 
things as, say, a Southern Baptist church or an assembly of God. Your quote was very good. One of the finest Bible lessons I've ever heard was given by a man named Charles Holt uh, when I lived in Dallas. And he gave a lesson on out of the church and into Christ. And it was uh, in very much in line with that quote that you gave at the beginning, uh, Tom. It is so important. But again, you know, if you're in Christ, are you in somebody who's billions and billions of miles away who postponed his return for thousands of years? Or are you in Christ who is reigning with a rod of iron over all the nations through his disciples on earth, you know, now, and who is with us and who has joined to us for eternity in an in I can't even pronounce it, <laughs> an indissolvable bond. There's a fancier way to say it than that. A marriage that can never end in death or divorce or annulment or anything like that. So we do, we do need to understand the basics of who God is, who Jesus Christ is, and that should be the source of our unity and of our strength not any human institution or any human creed or set of beliefs. So true. All right, well, we'll just go ahead and read uh, verses 6 through 12. We may, then we'll probably have to come back to that next time. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the Proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul, sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Oh, thanks, Tom. Now, this is a very rich paragraph in the book of Acts that Luke has composed here. <laughs> this, uh, they go through Cyprus towards the west until they reach Paphos, which is on the southwest coast, and this is the seat of the Roman provincial government. And here they find a Roman official from a distinguished family that had been in uh, public service and well-known in Rome for uh, over 200 years. Uh, he's interested in hearing from this Barnabas and Saul. So he, he apparently had friends or relatives who were uh, connected perhaps to the synagogue there or something. But for whatever he's heard of this, but he has this... Uh, this Judean sorcerer attached to him. 
And we get kind of a preview of the whole story of the New Testament uh, right here in this paragraph. In the book of Revelation, you have this harlot bride riding a beast. And, uh, and we know that in the days of Nero, the Judean leadership was able to harness the power of Rome and use it for their purposes to persecute the followers of Christ. Well, here, this Bar-Jesus kind of is a stand-in for all of the Judean leadership of that day. His name in Aramaic would be uh, son of Yeshua, or Joshua, which was, an, of course, an extremely common name since Joshua was such a famous hero in Israelite history. But uh, he, in this place, stands in for all of the Judean leadership which had arrayed itself against Christ and his followers. And he wants to keep the proconsul at any cost from, from listening to or believing what these two are saying. And we see that Saul here is now going to be known as Paul, which would be his Greek or Roman name. Because from this point on, he's now transitioned from working amongst the Judean community, and now he's going to be working in the, uh, the Greek and Roman world. And so from this point on, he's known as Paul. And right here is the fulcrum where, he, where it changes. And again, now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. But if we read this, as you can, just as well, if you can read it, he was filled with the Spirit of Christ. And he fixes his eyes on this guy. It says, you son of the enemy. This is almost a repeat of, of Jesus in his confrontations with the scribes and the Pharisees there in Jerusalem. And I don't believe that's accidental. We're supposed to see, particularly from this point forward in the book of Acts, a parallelism between what Paul is doing and what Jesus was doing uh, in Judea. Paul, it's, it's, it's eerie because Paul is going to have three trials at the end of the book of Acts, just like Jesus had three trials before his execution. Paul's going to have three trials before his execution. There's an amazing number of parallels here. So if, as the Bible clearly teaches, Paul was filled or indwelt by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, you know, here Christ is acting through Paul to continue his work of opposing the false leaders of Israel. And he calls him the son of of the, well, it's translated devil. This doesn't necessarily mean a demonic being with horns and a tail, but it means the opponent, the son of the opponent. It's like the opposing attorney, the accuser. That's how they would uh, also translate this. You son of the accuser, full of all gallant craftiness. See, he, he's not using a fair slate to compete against their message He's using any trick that he can to keep this Roman official from listening to them. And so Paul basically curses him for continuing to try to twist the right way of the Lord. And this, this way means a highway, a road. It's akin to the, the straight gate that we talk about in our work from time to time. He's trying to twist that road, uh, which was prophesied as the road which would lead the Gentiles to be gathered into Israel. 
just like we read in Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 66 at the beginning uh, tonight. See, he's trying to twist that road so that the nations, in this case Sergius Paulus, can't follow the road to be joined into the spiritual Jerusalem. So, the Lord's hand is against you, you'll be blind, and immediately a darkness fell on him. And again, this is calling into mind the plague of darkness that was imposed on Egypt. The book of Acts is a second exodus. In the book of Exodus, God's people are called out of Egypt. Now, the Judean people have become Egypt. They have returned to Egypt. They have become sin. They have become the enemy of God. And so, curses are being pronounced upon them, just as they were on Egypt in the days of Moses. And this curse of darkness falls on them. This is, this is a symbolic foreshadowing of the darkness that would fall upon all Judea within that one generation. And the proconsul saw this and marveled at it, and he believed. And so it has a good ending here. Anyway, we'll come back and pick up uh, any questions or details on this uh, before we continue on next time with uh, chapter 13, which is it's going to take us a few times to get through it because it's a very, very rich uh, part of the book of Acts. All right. Well, that was an excellent study, and we had lots of interesting side issues there, too, that were very eye-opening. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.